Father, thank you for the revelation of yourself to us. Thank you that in your magnanimous grace, you not only have revealed yourself to us in the Son, who has properly explained or exegeted the Father, but you have also revealed yourself to us in this written word. The Son became a man to demonstrate your word to your people, and your word has been granted to man so that we might know explicitly through the ages what you are like. And as we come to this passage that on first reading seems somewhat confusing, unclear. Might you manifest yourself to us? Might we find joy in what we find here? And even, Father, would it lead us to delight at the table of communion in a few minutes? So would you guide us with your Spirit? Would you instruct us by your Spirit's Word And would you transform us into the likeness of our Savior who died for us so that we might live for him. In his name we pray. Amen. In his book, Comrades, Stephen Ambrose writes about the horror of war. Combat, he says, requires all the nerves, all the physical attributes, every bit of the training It is only in combat, nowhere else, where time is measured in other ways than by clocks or calendars. Only in combat does the soldier realize that he is in the worst situation that can ever be imagined, that nothing else can compare to it, that the longer he stays where he is, the more likely that he will be dead, or if he is extremely lucky, he will be wounded." Only in combat is one in a position in which youngsters his age he doesn't know, has never met, are trying to kill him. And he is trying to kill them. The state of our state of war is a regular, ongoing part of our world. To be in this world is to be part of a world that is engaged in war. Historians and others who do these kinds of things have estimated that since 3600 B.C., the world has only known 292 years without war. There have been in those some 5600 years approximately 15,000 wars, taking a toll of 4 billion casualties. Our world is so desperate that one of the greatest commanders in one of the worst world wars, General George Marshall, said in 1945, if a man does not find the solution for world peace, it will be the most revolutionary reversal of his record we have ever known. And today, 
it doesn't seem that man has found an answer. You do have some hope, though, don't you? It is the hope that is anticipated by the prophet Zechariah, the prophet who was given to the Israelites to encourage them who had returned from their Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple, having now arrived again in Jerusalem. Nearly 20 years after their return from Babylonian captivity, the foundation of the temple having been laid in the first two years, the temple still had not been rebuilt and reconstructed. The nation did not continue the work because of fear of what Babylon and then Medo-Persia would do, and perhaps apathy as well. So Haggai and Zechariah were given to the nation of Israel and particularly Judah to encourage and exhort them to finish the work of rebuilding the temple. Zechariah's prophecy begins with a series of eight visions in which the nature of God and his plan for Judah and for Israel is increasingly unfolded. And in Zechariah 6, we find in the first eight verses the eighth and final of those visions. And it is in this vision that we will discover that sovereign God is in heaven. And all is and all will be right in the world. Whatever else is going on in the world at that time, whatever is going on in Judah, whatever is going on in Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia having succeeded the Babylonians, two years after the Israelites had returned to the land. All is well. Didn't appear that all was well. But the prophecy is given to the residents of Judah so that they might know that God is sovereign. They can trust Him. All is well and all will be well. All will be right in the world. This morning... In this eighth vision, we will see God's sovereign hand and his goodness in providing for Judah. Let's look at this vision in three ways as we have been doing as we're making our way through. First, in the first three verses, what is it that Zechariah saw in this eighth vision? vision? Let me just highlight some of the key points of what he saw in these verses. He says, verse 1, I lifted up my eyes again and looked... And behold, and that's been something of um, the, the sequence or the pattern in which he reveals that another vision has come to him. He lifts his eyes. His eyes evidently were down, not asleep, but contemplating, thinking about what he had seen in the previous visions. And now he lifts his eyes. He looks and he sees, behold, another vision. What is it that he saw in this vision? He saw four chariots. In the first vision, you might remember in chapter 1, starting in verse 7, uh, there were a series of horses, and we're going to see horses again in this one, but along with the horses in this one were chariots. Chariots were quite common in Old Testament times, and uh, they were common both in Zechariah's day and preceding Zechariah's day. Typically, they were fairly light. They were made of wood and leather, only the most essential parts being made of iron or bronze in order to keep the weight down, to, in order to enhance uh, the speed at which the horses might be able to pull the chariots. 
The main basket was made of white white wicker. This is show and tell time. Uh, This is something like a chariot that might have been envisioned by Zechariah. This is a chariot from the Philistine age. It's not exactly, perhaps, like it might have been, but it would have been very similar. Those baskets would have been large enough to carry somewhere between two and four people, at least one driver and one warrior. You see in this one, a warrior with an arrow. There might have been a a third one in there that typically uh, would have been there with a shield to defend against arrows coming in and perhaps a fourth. Um, Usually these chariots were pulled by two horses on occasion. There would have been also a third horse that would have been behind as a replacement, if you will, if one of the horses became weary or um, had become injured. Chariots were used Uh, fundamentally, typically in war, though also were used in peacetime to carry dignitaries. They were used in war because of their speed at which they could move from one part of the battlefield to another. Even even God, though, is pictured as being carried in a chariot as a theophany in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's significant that both both the peacetime and wartime uses of the chariot seem to be in place here, um, the chariots carrying out an act of war at the end of the vision and in the middle of the vision, the chariots carrying God's messengers, God's spirit as his dignitaries to do his will. So chariots, where are the chariots coming from? They're coming from between the two mountains. And Zechariah is very specific here, not just any old two mountains, but the two mountains. And evidently, we are to understand from this that the readers or the hearers of the prophecy would have understood which two mountains he, the, the chariots were coming out of. And much ink has been spilled about the identity of those two mountains. Some have speculated that it's Mount Zion in Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. That certainly would seem to make sense. Uh, but we just don't know. We just know that the readers probably understood who Zechariah was talking about, but we can't say with absolute certainty. Perhaps most significantly, we should note that these are mountains. And uh, mountains in ancient Near Eastern times were considered to be the habitation of gods. The gods lived within the mountains. And the Israelites didn't believe that God resided within a mountain. But in certain places in the Old Testament, for instance, in Psalm 48, in the first three verses, uh, it refers to God living at the mountain, on the mountain, figuratively. And, And that seems to be the idea here, that these chariots are emanating from God and from His purposes and His plan. Now, notice that they're not just ordinary mountains, there are two of them. And then he notes at the end of verse 1 that the mountains were bronze mountains. What in the world does he mean to be emphasizing by the word bronze? It could be the color, bronze, or it could be the metal. Those who have suggested that he's talking about the color are suggesting that this is the beginning of the day, so sunrise is coming up and it is painting the mountains in this bronze hue. It's a contrast to the first vision in which the sun has set and it's nighttime in the mountains and now it is daylight that is dawning. It is a new day dawning, as it were. That sounds good. It's 
feasible, I'm not dying on that hill to defend that one. I think perhaps it's better to see it that it's a metal. And these are bronze mountains in that they are, like the metal bronze, virtually impenetrable. And it is to picture the fact that the enemies cannot resist the advances of God against them. That everything within that mountain is safe and secure. It is perhaps to picture that these are supernatural mountains because I've been to the mountains many times and I've failed to ever find a bronze mountain. They don't exist in the natural world. And I think that's what we're to understand. These are God's mountain. It's about Him and His authority and that everything that is coming from these mountains where He dwells is coming from His heavenly rule and from His sovereignty. Now with these chariots are horses. Chariots typically don't move by themselves. These are being pulled by horses. Note that there are at least two horses with each of the chariots, like the picture I provided for you. The first chariot had red horses pulling it, verse 2. The second chariot, black horses. The third chariot, white horses. And the fourth chariot, strong, dappled horses. Some have found great significance in the coloring of the horses. So one commentator says, if the colors are significant, perhaps red symbolizes war and bloodshed. Black designates death and famine. White speaks of triumph and victory. And dappled denotes pestilence and plagues. And that's not an uncommon position. They go to Revelation chapter 8 or excuse me, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, in which there are horses that are described in that way and given those attributes. The problem is, Revelation 6 happens 2,500 years after, at least, after the revelation that is given in Zechariah chapter 6. And I'm just wondering how the readers of Zechariah could have understood Revelation 6 when it hadn't happened yet. So I just think that's, maybe perhaps straining a little bit as to the meaning. What we do well to remember is that though the description of the horses are similar, similarity does not mean identity. So just because you have horses in one passage doesn't mean that they're the same in the other passage. I think, frankly, that because the colors of the horses are unexplained, that that's where we're to leave it. We just don't know what the meaning of the color of the horses is. In fact, The angel doesn't seem concerned about the color of the horses and what they mean, nor does Zechariah. And so let's just leave it there. What is far more important is that the horses go. And we're going to see that in just a minute. What I want you to also understand and see is that there is a similarity between this vision, the eighth vision, and the first vision. Keith, I was thinking about you. Where's Keith? Keith, I was thinking about you. I made, I made a chart. There you are. You're in the bed. You're supposed to be over there. Uh, I made a chart. Now, I made two charts, and I thought about you this morning or this week when I did that. So let's see some similarities to the first vision. Vision number one, the actors, if you will, the participants in the vision, horses in vision one, horses and chariots in vision eight. What did they do? What's their activity? Vision one, they were patrolling. In vision 8, they were patrolling, not just three times. In fact, we'll see this seven times. But in, uh, in verse 6, um, it says they are going forth 
Uh, they are going forth, the, the white ones go forth after them, the dappled ones are going forth to the south country. Then verse 7, uh, he says they are eager to go patrol. Verse 7, the command is given, go patrol, so they patrolled. So three times they are said to be patrolling, seven times they are said to be going. What's the domain? Where do they do that? In both instances, they are patrolling the earth. So they have the same context in which they're operating. Who sends them? Vision 1, the Lord of hosts. Vision 8, the Lord of all the earth. And we've seen this idea that the Lord of hosts means that he is the Lord of the armies. He's the Lord of all things. He is, he is God Almighty. And that's the same idea when he says the Lord of all the earth has sent them. And what's the outcome? Chapter 1, verse 13 Comfort for Israel. The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words and comforting words. Chapter 6, verse 8. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. I'm satisfied. There's rest. And so both of these point to comfort, rest, peace for God's people. And I point those things out, not just because, well, that's really cool. Um, it is. But I think the, that the Lord, through the prophet, is making a point. And that is he's taking these two visions and in their similarities, he's in a sense putting brackets around these visions as a start and a finish to point to a common theme of the victory of God. So this people that is discouraged, fearful, unwilling to fulfill their task that's been given to them, have confidence that God is victorious. And he wants them to see that in the first vision, the last vision. And we're meant to understand that all of this is designed to help us to see the victory of God. So there are similarities to the first vision, but they're not identical. There are a few differences from the first vision as well. The difference is the location. In vision one, they're in a valley. In vision eight, they're on a mountain. In vision one, the actors include not just horses, but riders. In vision eight, there are, to our understanding, no riders or none mentioned and none that speak in contrast to the first vision. Now, the outcome is worldly rest in the first vision and godly rest in the last vision. Notice verse 11 of chapter 1. These who were patrolling answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. And if you remember, we noted at that time that the earth was peaceful and quiet because of the subjugation of the earth by the Medo-Persian Empire. So they had put down and repressed all people such that no one was willing to fight back against them. And so there is worldly peace, if you will, in vision one. But at the end of the last vision, there is godly peace. And so while there are similarities between the visions, there are also unique aspects to each of the visions and they're designed to teach us the unique aspects of the nature of God and his plan for Israel. How will he redeem them? How will he provide them? And they also provide multiple 
different kinds of exhortations and encouragements about their need to rebuild the temple. So that's what Zechariah saw. Now we dig in. What in the world did it mean? And that's where Zechariah goes next. What does his vision mean? That's given to us in verses 4 through 8. And as he did in many of these other visions, he says in verse 4, Then I spoke and I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And we might say, What in the world? What is this? A lot of people have wondered about whether he's talking about chariots or horses. When he says these, does he mean chariots or does he mean horses? Yes, I'm firm on that, yes. He doesn't understand anything about the vision. He doesn't know what any of it means. I do think, though, that he is thinking not so much about the chariots because you'll notice that the chariots drop off. They're the first thing that is mentioned in the vision, but you don't hear of them again. Now the focus becomes the horses. But you can't have the horses carrying the spirits without there being chariots. So there's an implication that they are there along the way. Just a side note, that he asks for help in interpreting the vision is a good reminder for us. Don't understand from this that Zechariah is ununderstanding or that he is not trained or that he is mentally deficient He is anything but those things. He could have speculated about what the horses and the mountains and the colors meant. But he asks the question because he doesn't want to know what he thinks. He wants to know what God thinks. And he wants to get it right. And we do well to follow his example. Be careful about speculating about things about which the Scripture does not speak and is silent. And so when the Scripture lays these things out as it does in this vision and then leaves certain things unexplained, we need to tread really carefully before we walk in and say, well, I know what that is, when God hasn't revealed it. Further, there are things that God has revealed about this vision, and that's where we need to give our attention. And that's where the angel who has been throughout these visions explaining these realities to Zechariah helps us. Verse 5, the angel replied to me, these, the horses and chariots, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. They're the four spirits of heaven. The word spirits can also mean wind. We've seen that throughout these visions already. But it's best to understand that these are not just movements of wind, but they are angelic beings, spiritual beings. Notice, because they had been standing before the Lord. Wind doesn't stand before the Lord. Beings stand before the Lord. And in fact, we find something similar in chapter 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you perform my service, then you will also govern my house and will have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. And we identified those who were standing there as angelic beings. And 
even as in chapter 3, angelic beings were standing before him, now those beings, those spirits, are being sent out by God to do his bidding. Interestingly, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 also tells us that the writer of Hebrews understands these spirits as being angelic beings who were sent by God. What is most important about these spirits is that they go. Verse 5, the use of the four spirits going forth. So one time in verse 5, and then three times in verse 6, and three more times in verse 7. There are allusions to the fact that they're going. They've been sent, and they go. They've been commanded, and they go. There's this idea that these beings just seem to be chomping at the bit. They're just ready to roll. God sent us, and we can't wait to fulfill our duty. They're eager, and they're equipped to complete the task on which they have been sent. The other notable aspect about verse 5 is the one who has sent them. They're not acting on their own initiative, but they have been sent. And who has sent them? The one who is the Lord of all the earth. Now, what we have seen through all of these visions is a repetition of various names for God, Most notably, the name, either by itself or used in some kind of construct, compound name, Lord Yahweh, the one who is the covenant God of Israel. But that's not the name that is given here. It is the Lord Adonai, the Lord, the master, the sovereign of all the earth, of all the nations, not just Judah, not just Israel, but of all things and all people. And what we're meant to understand by this, and we're going to see this throughout this section, is that God the Lord will subjugate every person and every enemy and every governmental entity to himself, culminating in the rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's where he's going. And this is all about the fact that God is master. Whatever else is going on in this world the, the vision is designed to reveal to Zechariah and the people, God is the master. God is sovereign. And he's not just sovereign over Judah. Yes, that's true. He's not just sovereign over Jerusalem. Yes, that is true that he's sovereign over Jerusalem. But he's also sovereign over Israel. He's also sovereign over Samaria. Yes, he's sovereign over every part of the world. There's not one place in the world that operates apart from Him. There are no rebel atoms in this world. All of them are subjugated by Him. Note this as well. When the angels come out of heaven, they arrive on earth with the authority of God as His emissaries. And thus they are incapable of being defeated or resisted. They will accomplish what has been laid out for them. So this is a massive encouragement to the residents of Jerusalem in 519 B.C., but it's also an encouragement to all of God's people that have lived in every age. He is still the Lord of all the earth. Nothing's changed. It's not like in 519 B.C., according to our calendar, He was the Lord of all the earth, and then something happened and He fell off His throne. No, friends, he's still sovereign. Nothing has escaped his notice, his rule, his authority. I want you to notice one other thing about 
these horses. And again, what is significant is not their colors, but what is significant is where they go and what they do. Notice verse 6. With one of which the black horses, so with these spirits, the spirits were with the black horses. They are going forth to the north country. And the white ones with their chariot go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. I've got a pile of commentaries on Zechariah. I didn't read all of them this week, but I read a, I read a number of them, many of them. And all of them are asking the questions, why only north and south? And what happened to the red ones? We got the dappled ones. We got the white ones. We got the black ones. What happened to the red ones? I don't know. Doesn't tell us. I think what we can figure is it's not important. Or he would have told us. When you're reading narrative literature, let the narrator tell you what's important. And he's told us what's important. And what's important is that some of the horses are going north and some of them are going south. And then you might ask the question, yeah, 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 but what about east and west? Well, let me show you a map. What's to the west of Israel? This is a little tiny body of water called the Mediterranean Sea. They didn't go to the west because that's water. And they didn't go to the east. Israel is kind of right in the middle. So you see Jerusalem at the bottom of those arrows. That's about a little bit further down as the southern part of Israel. The northern part of Israel is about where it says Damascus and the trans-Euphrates. So it's just that little piece of land bordered on the east by the Jordan, the west by the Great Sea. Well, what's east of the Jordan River? Oh, just this massive thing called the Arabian Desert from there all the way to the, um, to the sea on the east into which the Tigris and the Euphrates flow. So even if somebody was in the east, like Babylon, they always attacked not from the east but the north. And you see it in those arrows. They would go all the way up the Tigris, Euphrates, and then drop down from the north. And so when he says they're going to the north and they're going to the south, what's he saying? All your enemies are going to be vanquished. Because those are the only two directions people came from. And specifically, he's saying, what are the two enemies that have created the most problem for you? Well, to the south, who was that? Egypt. And to north, who was that? Babylonia, most recently, and now Medo-Persia. Before Babylonia, Assyria, and they always came from the north. And he's saying, all of those nations that have been creating problems for you, these chariots, these horses... These spirits are going forth to defeat. Verse 7. The strong ones went out. Which ones are those? Are those only the dappled ones? No, I think he just means all the horses. All the horses are strong. And so all the horses that have been sent out are being sent out with this purpose. To patrol the earth. Three times he says in verse 7, they're going to patrol the earth. To patrol the earth... That word patrol means that they're giving constant and extensive examination as a military exercise. They're on full of them. And they're going to execute a military plan. And notice who it is that sent them. And he said, go 
patrol the earth. Who said the Lord of all the earth that has already been identified for them in verse 5? The Lord of all the earth has sent them. He has said from his holy mountain, as it were, to go out to the nations. Their only responsibility was to carry out God's mandate against the nations. One commentator says, from first to last, from the first vision to the last vision, the affairs of the nations are under God's direction, not man's. So helpful. It's all about God accomplishing His purpose for Israel. And then we come to verse 8 and the full significance of their patrolling. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me saying, that word he cried out is a loud utterance. It's the sense of making a proclamation. There's a weightiness and an importance to what is being said. There's, there's an urgency. You, you can hear it. Then he cried out. It's intense. And it's excited. And you read that and you think, well, this is the angel speaking. And then he cried out to me and he spoke, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath. And we understand from that that the angel is no longer speaking. But God himself, as he has done multiple times in these visions, has interceded and interjected his own voice. And he now is speaking. And what is he speaking about? He is speaking about the appeasement of his wrath. The word wrath, again, is the word that is been translated in various places in these visions as spirit or wind. Occasionally the word has a sense of anger in that it is the spirit of anger, and I think that's what he's getting at here. God's spirit has been appeased. His spirit of anger has been appeased. Literally, it's been put to rest. God's wrath against the nations has been executed, it has been fulfilled, and it no longer needs to be fulfilled because it has been been carried out in fullness, and now God can rest. God's spirit of anger is put to rest because the full weight of His judgment against the nations and against sin has been appeased. And we know this is against the nations because he's, while well, he points to just the land of the north, we understand that it's, it's more than that. The northern, identi- the northern enemy would have been identified in the second vision as the, the land of Babylon or the nation of Babylon. But we understand that God was not just angry against Babylon, he's also angry against all of the nations all of the nations that felt they were secure. Chapter 1, verse 11, the angel, the, the patrolmen, the horses, the riders on the horses come back and say, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. The, Lord, the, the nations, 
Medo-Persia thinks everything is fine and dandy. They've got an upper hand on everything. They are peaceful. They don't need to subject themselves to everyone. And then in verse 15 of chapter 1, the Lord says, I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For a while I was only a little angry, and then they furthered the disaster. They they pressed in and subjugated the nation of Israel more than they had been qualified to do. They'd gone beyond what God allowed them to do, and God was angry with them. And now, His anger is appeased. Why? Because the nations are vanquished. And it's a reminder that he's not just looking at what's going on in the day of Zechariah, is he? He's looking not just at that time, but he's looking at a final time. We saw in chapter 5, verse 11, that Babylon, in a sense, was taken into captivity. And she was set in prison in her house in 511, waiting for destruction. Now the destruction in this final vision has come. She's vanquished. She's defeated. And that's anticipating the final defeat that Babylon will see in the book of Revelation. And so the writer Zechariah, the the visionary Zechariah, the vision receiver rather, Zechariah, is encouraging the people. God's going to take care of you now, but he's also going to take care of you ultimately with his final wrath being fulfilled. Previous visions have pictured peace for Israel. But I want you to notice here, not just peace for Israel, but peace for the world is promised. God has carried out all of the implications of His sovereign control over all the earth. And He is finished. And He is at rest. Since Genesis 3, all creation and people in creation have groaned under the weight of sin And now God has acted with finality. God is in heaven. And all is right with the world. The king is universally ruling over his realm in actuality. And there are no rebels. That's what Zechariah's vision meant. Let's see some implications. What do these visions teach us about God? One, God's plans are unchangeable and undefeatable. The messengers come from God's mountain, from his habitation, where he makes his eternal plan. What he wills in heaven must be accomplished on earth. Nothing on earth can undermine, overthrow, rebel against, defeat what has been set apart, planned in heaven. The messengers will be sent according to God's divine timetable. Neither he nor they are late. They're exactly on time. And they will accomplish his bidding at his time. They come from God's impregnable fortress, from his bronze mountain. The mountain can't be defeated. They can't be defeated. He can't be defeated. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's tempting to despair when we observe overwhelming unrighteousness. Think about Abraham or Elijah 
or David with the Philistines. Think about your own life and the things that are pressing in with you. Oh, brother, sister, don't despair. God isn't defeated. God won't be defeated. Second principle, God's wrath is not immediate, but it is imminent. Babylon was defeated. Babylon will still ultimately be defeated, and so will every ruler and authority. No injustice against Israel will remain, and no injustice injustice against Israel will go unpunished. Injustice will be vanquished, will be reconciled. Not only against Israel, but against all the earth. Every aspect of injustice will be met with righteous wrath. The wrath of the Lamb of God will be eternally poured out against all rebel people and all rebel nations. We don't have time to look at it, but maybe just jot in your notes there. Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 12, essentially through the end of the chapter, and the cup of God's wrath being poured out against the nations. That's coming. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, don't don't be deluded into thinking that God doesn't care about your sin. He's patient. He's so patient. But that patience does not mean he doesn't care. He does care. And he will pour out wrath against your sin and your rebellion unless you repent. And oh friend, there's a chance to repent. You can turn away from your sin and run to the Savior Jesus Christ. And ask God, will you accept his death on the cross for my death? Would you accept his death in the place of my death? And would you give me the life that he has for me instead? And brother, sister, friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, that is your only hope. Ah, but it is your every hope. And if you turn to him, he will redeem you God's wrath will be satisfied there is a time when he will rest from wrath where wrath in a sense will cease though not in hell because he's satisfied so take comfort and be warned finally God's day of final peace is not here yet but its arrival is soon The Son of Man, Colossians 3, is already seated on His heavenly throne. He doesn't need to do anything else before He returns to get His people. He's ready to come, and He's coming soon. The Father is going to execute His wrath against all sin in a final manner, and He will do it soon, and peace will follow. What hope the Israelites had to receive from this prophecy. Says one writer, God would preserve His feeble flock, checkmating every effort to destroy them till Messiah should Himself appear. 
God's wrath will be put to rest. And that means that while his wrath will always exist in hell, it won't exist in heaven. And it won't exist for us who are his. Every tear of grief will be wiped away. So friend, whatever is tempting you to disappointment, to discontentment, to unrest, to lack of peace, remember the spirit warriors of God are soon to be unleashed and He will bring lasting peace for Israel and for us. In dark days, it's tempting to think that dark days are final. They are not final. I've been reading this week, devouring actually a brand new book that has ministered to my soul so well. It's written by a man named Tim Chalice and it's called Seasons of Sorrow. Some of you are familiar with Tim's story. Tim's a a blogger of significant influence in the Christian church, served as a pastor in Toronto for a number of years. And now writes extensively and tremendously helpful for the Christian church. He had a son named Nick. Nick was a student at Southern Seminary, Boyce University and Southern Seminary, planning to go into the pastorate when almost exactly two years ago he was out with his sister and some friends uh, playing a sporting event out in a green common area and he dropped dead of a heart attack at age 20. What do you do when your son dies at 20? Listen to what Challenge writes, Seasons of Sorrow. God makes many promises. And the best of them are for our worst times. It is when we are struck down and nearly destroyed that we most crave God's comfort, God's assurance, God's words of peace. Perhaps the most precious of all is this. All things work for good. Those who love God and are loved by Him can have confidence that He is working through all of life's circumstances to bring good out of bad, light out of darkness, joy out of sorrow. It's not that God is especially agile, a kind of cosmic PR man, adept at manipulating circumstances but rather that He is the planner, the engineer, the designer who has ordained the means just as much as the end. He ordains the calm and the storm, the darkness and the dawn, the famine and the feast. This being the case, no event is meaningless, no situation purposeless, no condition ultimately hopeless. God is working out His good will, not despite dark days, difficult trials, and broken hearts, but through them. Such circumstances are the raw material He uses to form and shape His good plans, His perfect purposes. God's promises are for our worst of times. That was true for Judah and Zechariah's day. It's true for Tim Challies. It's true for you. And it's true for me. 
there has been a stunning reversal in the world's quest for peace. There really has been, contrary to what George Marshall said. And the stunning reversal is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is our King. And because He is our King, all is well in this world. Father, we thank You for the provision of our Messiah, the provision of our Savior, and the revelation of Your good plan for Israel and for us. You're trustworthy. You're good. And you're accomplishing everything you will to accomplish. And you will accomplish it. There's a day of final peace coming. And we can be at peace until that day. Thank you, Father, that we can be at peace And thank you for the Savior whom we are about to remember who makes that peace possible. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.